Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. The chair calls upon Sandra Braun. I'll, and I'll repeat the questions. I might, I might change the question as, the, as I repeat them to make it easier to answer. Okay, Sandra wants to know why my stender is bigger than than whose stenders. No, no, it's it's definitely bigger than Rabbi Chorney's. Isn't it self-evident? These are these are custom-designed stenderim um, that match the physical presence of the rabbis who'll be using them. Ours are the same. Okay, thank you, Sandra. <laughs> She'll be here all week. Try the veal. Um, don't try the veal. Veal is straight. Okay. Um, who has a question? Yes, who is that? Tali. Can't hear. the mourner's cottage when someone has passed. The mourner's cottage doesn't ever talk about them. It doesn't ever, why is that the prayer chosen? Great. So Tali asked the question why we say the mourner's cottage, which uh, if you've looked at it, says nothing about death, nothing about loss, nothing about memory. Why is that the prayer that's said for death? Um, it's the result of a, of, of, of a centuries-long organic right. process okay. where something that was originally attached attached to something, got reattached to something else. So the Talmud speaks about the fact that when, um, uh, when someone has died, one of the things that you can, but, but if, they're, if they're mourners, praise God's name. That that does a service to the ascent of the soul of the person who died because their loved one is still on earth praising God's name and not cursing God's name. Cause you can imagine that it's instinctual. If you've lost someone to not praise God's name, I don't want to say that I want to say right. May God's name be small. Cause I'm so angry. So it's considered a, a feather in the cap of the soul of the deceased for someone to say, that's one thing. Second thing is that originally the Kaddish was composed as a prayer that was recited after learning, after studying Torah. And we see remnants of that because there's something called the Kaddish to Rabbanan, the, the, the uh, rabbi's Kaddish, which is recited in the morning service, actually, early on. Um, if you get, you know, when normally when services start at 9.15, if you get here by 9.19, uh, you'll hear that first Kaddish. And that's recited after rabbinic texts have been studied. And since it was also traditional back then that in memory of someone who died, you study rabbinic texts, that Kaddish was appended to that experience of studying text in someone's memory. And then at some point, the middle part disappeared and it just became that, no, that's also the prayer we say when someone has died, even if we're not studying uh, rabbinic text in that moment. So there's a much longer version of that history, but essentially it's both because that one liner is supposed to be a, uh, a celebration or a something in the favor of the person who died. And that initially all mo- moments of mourning was, were associated with studying texts and the Kaddish prayer was recited after that. And then it just, you know, the, the Jewish tradition is kind of like entropy. It's, it's, it's always growing and never really being made smaller. So once, once it became that the mourner's Kaddish was attached to moments of death, 
it always will be that way until time immemorial. Yes. Yeah. Paul asked a question, why is it that um, on Rosh Hashanah, the first Torah reading had seven aliyot, the second had five? I can remember exactly where I was um, at Camp Ramah in the mid-80s when we had a guest lecturer uh, tell us something about the liturgy of Torah reading, and I don't know why this stuck in my brain, but I remembered it. On weekday readings, we'd read three aliyot. On Rosh Chodesh and Cholamod, we'd read four aliyot. On Yantif, we'd read five aliyot. On Yom Kippur, we read six aliyot. And on Shabbat, we read seven aliyot. And we read seven aliyot on Shabbat, even if it's a yantif. That had the yantif been on a weekday, we only read five. So the first day of Rosh Hashanah can appear on Shabbat. The second day cannot. So when the first day of Rosh Hashanah is a weekday, it's the same exact reading. It's just divided into five aliyot. But since it appears on Shabbat, you take two of those aliyot and split it into two so that we will indeed have read seven aliyot on that day because not only is it Rosh Hashanah, it was also Shabbat. Same thing for Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, today we read how many aliyot? How many? Six. And had it been Shabbat, we would have taken, I think, the first one and divided it into two so that would have come up with seven total aliyot for, for, for Shabbat and Yom Kippur. Kenji, you have a question? <laughs> Okay, we got a question from Zoom. Uh, Daniel, do you have a question? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm, uh, I'm a visitor from Boynton Beach, Florida. And I have a question about the dem- demographics of your synagogue. How many members do you have? I'd like to know what's the second question. Uh, we have somewhere That's about it. 900 family units, something like that, 925. Okay. Thank you. The easiest question I've, I've had in all the years of doing the Q&A. Um, yes, who, I can't see. Who is that? Hi, Deborah. Why don't you come to the microphone so you don't have to shout? Hi. I had a question um, regarding Rabbi Schatz's uh, story about the telephone booth. Okay. Wind, because what does the Jewish tradition say about, about, that, that's a, about just speaking directly to loved ones who departed in that way, not necessarily in an empty telephone booth? You know what I mean? Like, do we, is that, that's something um, people do in many religions, you know, like just talk to, like if you miss somebody and you want to think of them and talk to them, not in a service. What, what does Judaism say about that? I'm just curious. First of all, did people hear the question? Is that mic on? That mic is not on. So uh, maybe, oh. oh, okay. You just repeat the question. Okay. What's that? Yeah, okay. I heard the question. Yeah, okay. The question was how many members of Temple Beth Am have? No. <laughs> Um, the question was relating to Rabbi Schatz said in her sermon, maybe I'll have Rabbi Schatz answer this, is how does Judaism feel about the notion of speaking to your departed loved ones, not kind of only or especially as part of a formal service, but just 
invoking them in your mind and speaking to them. Is that the question? Yeah. Do you want to try? Do you want to answer that, Rabbi Schatz? Um, I, I guess I actually don't know if it says that it would be okay or it wouldn't be okay. Um, I, I think that it, it goes back to the idea that we say mourners Kaddish and that we have time periods of mourning that we do Shiva, we do Shloshim, you know, you have the year, you have different Yisker periods. So we're always supposed to be thinking of the people who we've lost and be Rabbi able Schatz, to pause one second. Yes. I love the four men in the back of the tent very much. I'm just going to ask them to lower their voices a little bit. Unless Thank they you. have the answer to the question. But case, I do love you. They can come up here. Um, so I, I think it's the case that we are always supposed to be thinking of the people who we've lost and find ways in which we can speak to them. Maybe Rabbi Kligfeld knows if there's exact rationale around how and why and when. But what I was going to add to the question about Mourner's Kaddish that I think Tali raised was that the way that Mourner's Kaddish is written is that you are supposed to say the, the words and then the community is supposed to interrupt you in a certain way and say, Amen, we hear you, we're with you. So if what is bringing you comfort in remembering someone, especially if you are alone and not in community and, and with the ability to say Kaddish, to be able to speak to your loved one with a phone booth or without, I think is a properly Jewish thing to be able to do. And I can't imagine any reason that it would be seen as something that would be improper or some kind of idolatry or anything like that. Yeah, I agree. I, I can't think of a place in Jewish text that speaks to it directly. I think some of modern American somewhat antiseptic Judaism has gotten uncomfortable, unfortunately, with, with rawer versions of rituals. Um, some of what I, what I have done and experienced in the last few years in kind of dipping into other religious traditions, not, not faith statements, but forms of ritual have allowed me or invited me to introduce back into our very structured observance of Judaism things that are a little bit more unscripted. Um, and I think that opens up the tradition a little bit. And so sometimes at Yisker, I, I didn't say this today, but sometimes I have said it, when you, get, when you are saying the Yisker paragraph about your mother, about your father, about your brother, about your sister, also leave space in your mind to speak to them. I, I do think that speaking in the second person to a you is very different than speaking about a him or a her. Baruch ata Adonai. We don't say blessed is the Lord. We say blessed are you, Lord. And I use this all the time. Any of you, I'm trying to think of anyone who's here who've, for whom I've done a baby naming. Yes. Okay. So um, sometimes at a baby name or a bris, I'll tell the couple, um, instead of when we get to the place of, of talking about the name, don't speak to us, the audience, about your baby's name. Speak to your baby, who's not like listening and understanding, but it, it, it draws upon a different emotional reservoir if you're speaking to your child and telling him or her what his or her birth means to you and what the name means to you, then if you're, and we'll just listen in on that private moment. So I think that in general, we should be crafting more of those private moments in ritual that access a different immediacy when it comes to loved ones or people who are alive. I just wanted to add one thing based on the story that I shared in my sermon that you uh, used as the basis for your question. I think one of the most powerful points of that story is not that the people sharing 
thoughts with their loved one that they actually believed that that person was listening, but that it was a cathartic way for them to bring the person to mind. Right. So I think that if, like what Rabbi Klickville just said, if you're able to speak to them in the you or even say their name and say your statement, that's for you. That's not for them. And so to be able to remember the person by having that personal connection still, I think is extremely powerful. Right. And then one more association with that, Rabbi Shah, said that also can relate to prayer. Do you have to believe that God is listening for it to be powerful for you to say Baruch Atah Adonai? If the former were true, far fewer people, I think, would pray regularly because it's just, it's in the realm of faith, whether or not there's a supernal one who's taking account specifically of our prayers. But But Heschel would say that the experience of your articulating your prayers to the Holy One, independent of whether or not the Holy One is hearing those words, is the foundation of what of a spiritual life. Yes, Kenji. Carl Sunshine? Great. I love Carl's questions. Carl, go ahead. Okay, I have a question about Kol Nidre. Okay. Uh, struck me this year. I was reading the marginal notes, I think, and it said it was originally written to be uh, retroactive and would uh, uh, cancel vows you had not fulfilled in the past year, which kind of makes sense to me because if you hadn't made it by the end of the year, okay, please forgive me, let me off. Then it was changed to be prospective and apply to the coming year, which seems to be very undermining of all our good intentions for the coming year to say in advance, uh, they don't count, they're not for real, and they don't matter. So could you comment a bit on that? Rabbi Chorney is going to start. I, I, love, I love that question. I'm going to answer it one way and then add another thought and then pass it off to Rabbi Klickfeld. So one thought is just, I, I think there are different ways in history. I don't know where to look at Carl, because I, I like that I have your face over here, but I'm, I'm looking at you. Um, and at, by the way, there are like 90 people joining us on, on the Q&A. So it's very nice and a full, a full tent and a full Zoom house. Carl, um, Kol Nidre is not the only liturgy where this happens, where I think the liturgists can't decide. Is it that the idea is that we want to to get rid of the vows uh, from the past year, or is it that we want to sort of set ourselves up for an easier year to come? The same thing happens in the liturgy for the prayer for the new month. In Mavarachi Mahodesh, the the same exact thing happens. So you find some prayer books where we have ourselves uh, blessing us also for the month that has passed, and we have some liturgies that bless us for this month and the month to come, right? So the month that came before to this month, and this month to the month to come. And I guess if you go to like the wrong two shuls, you could wind up skipping. If, if you do the math right, you could wind up like skipping a month of blessing in between. So I think that you could look at it either way. Which is it that you want to accomplish in, um, in which of those two liturgies? Um, is it that you need that, that um, in that moment, you need the cathartic cleansing that goes along with the theme of the season? Or is it that in looking into the next year that you know already, having seen yourself this past year, that you need to get rid of the vows to come? And they're two just liturgical traditions in competition with each other. And I'll also just seize on this moment to share a thought that I shared with Rabbi Klickfeld earlier this year, which is to say that, as you point out, it really is just a 
legal statement. It's just a, it's just a legal declaration in that moment. And the thought came to me this year that it's become something very similar to a Ketubah text, right? Which itself is just a legal declaration. And at some point somebody decided that it would be a really wonderful thing if we would take this legal declaration and turn it into a piece of art. I say that about a Ketubah. I, I bet many people who are here with us some way have a Ketubah as a piece of art hanging on their wall, even though that's just a legal declaration, one to the other of the promises of God forbid what would happen if the marriage were to dissolve, uh, promises to one another of keeping each other together, and yet it was turned into a piece of art. And look at Kol Nidre, same thing happened. People took this legal declaration and they just turned it into a piece of art. And this year we just had to dial it back in person a little bit to a declaration again. But I think either way, it's an interesting piece of liturgy. It just depends on what the liturgist who edited the, the Mahzor chose to do with it. Yeah, I, I would add briefly, I, I also love that question, Carl. Um, it's kind of a weird thing that if you, if you ask the least educated Jew to name five prayers they've ever heard of, Kol Nidre is one of them, right? Shema, I don't know, Elenu, Mornish Kaddish, Kol Nidre. So it, it's become a famous piece of Jewish liturgy. I don't know, right? Uh, and, and maybe Akdamut. No. Um, um, but it's odd that it did because there's nothing about, first of all, it's not even a prayer. It's not a prayer. It doesn't invoke God's name. And there's nothing about it conceptually that is significant to a Jewish ethos. If anything, the opposite. And the historical shift that you made reference to, um, Carl, had to do with the fact, if I remember correctly from, I haven't thought about this exact question in a long time, from my liturgy class in rabbinical school, was that there was some discomfort with the fact amongst the sages of the time that getting to Kol Nidre and retroactively nullifying all the values you made last year was just too convenient. It was just too cheap. Like, so I'm going to make vows and promises, but I know as I'm making them and vowing them that if I don't fulfill them, it's okay, because I'll just say Kol Nidre, they're all nullified. I, I'm a clean, clean slate. The intense, I think the intention was to be able to start the new year with a clean slate, but it was done, it was achieved too easily without work. The, the, parad the, the paradox for me, maybe it's not a paradox, maybe it's just an ironic thing, that the switch from, the, from the going backwards to forwards is equally cheap. It's saying all the, th all the promises I'm about to make this year, I don't really mean. It doesn't really mean I don't really mean them, but it means that I don't want to be held religiously accountable for something that I really am expressing as a wish. I don't want you to tell me it was a vow. I also think it's almost impossible for us to understand anything about this prayer because we don't really live in a world of religious vows. We use the words I promise, I swear all the time, but we don't live in a religious community where making a neder had religious significance that somehow we owed something not only to the person we made the promise to, but to God. Maybe sometimes we think we do that. But in earlier times, in temple times, right, the whole, there's a whole part of the sacrificial system that was related to oaths that you made, that, that, that once you made them, they were as incumbent upon you as I imagine all of you feel it's incumbent upon you not to eat or drink today. You know that it's a religious obligation. Whether you fulfill it or not is, is up to you, but you know it's a religious obligation. In that Jewish world, if you made a or, or a whatever the name is, or a kinui, that took on religious significance that obligated you. 
And so these are the rabbis trying to say, we mean what we say, but we don't mean what we say. We want Jews to take their word seriously, but not that seriously that they become ensnared in promises they never intended to make. So the resolution of the discomfort, I think, is actually equally uncomfortable, which is why, as Rabbi Chorney says, the prayer remains as like a relic that mostly what the prayer means to the modern Jew is Yom Kippur's beginning, right? Like, does not mean, oh, I have to think about the significance of my oaths. It means I'm not going to eat for 25 hours, right? And that's why it, I think, has has retained its position in our community, not because of the, of the meaning of the words, which are interesting, but it's like its position and the day. And it's tune. Although there are many tunes to Konidre. No, just kidding. Okay, uh, who, who, who's next? Yes. Yes, please. It's so hard to see. I know it may, it's hard to see who's there. Oh, hi. Yes. Hi, Lisa. Okay, come, um, come closer to the mic so everyone oh, can hear the question. I'm Lisa Chaikin. I had a more general question about Israel. Okay. I was just wondering if any of you can comment on the recent Abraham Accords and how you interpret that. Yeah, so Lisa's asking about the recent Abraham Accords where um, there, there was a uh, peace treaty or peace agreement signed between the United Arab Emirates, uh, whose capital really is Abu Dhabi, um, and Bahrain. Um, Oh, I have a lot to say about that, um, and, and I'll only say a portion of it, and, and I'm not going to put my colleagues on the spot, but I'd be interested to hear what they had to say if they want to. I feel guilty that I succumbed to nervousness and didn't, in the days after the peace treaty, put something on my Facebook page congratulating Israel and the Jewish people that, that added a third and a fourth Arab country to the list of those with whom we have at least nominal peace. The reason why I resist it is because nothing is easy these days. Nothing is unpoliticized. Nothing is undemocratic or republican. Nothing, is, has, nothing has nothing to do with the, with the president of the United States, who is, who was, and who, who might be. Everything is so complicated. And I, got, I myself got so pulled into that complication of whether or not my celebrating this agreement would somehow say something about my American political ideology when really it was just an expression of my Zionism because of the American president who is a lodestone for many people and certainly people have strong feelings about him because of his being the one to have orchestrated it. Listen, it was not the, I don't believe it to be a cessation of war the way it was in Egypt in the 1970s or even with Jordan, because the UAE and Bahrain were never in active war with Israel. When you're on, you know, when, you, when you've been on the Golan Heights, you haven't been nervous about Bahraini tanks coming down the hills, nor during the seasons of eras of, of terror in, uh, in Israel, were you concerned about Dubaian suicide bombers. So it's, it's, it, 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 it's not as monumental as the peace treaties with Egypt or Jordan. It also didn't require nearly as much surrender on the part of the, of the state of Israel. The reason why I, I championed it and celebrate it is because for decades, the Arab world, I believe, chose to conflate um, Muslim piety, which is 
on its own face laudable with an anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic understanding of the presence of Jews in, in the promised land and therefore attached all of their power to the claims of the Palestinians, some of which might be legitimate and some of which may not, and therefore made it impossible for natural relationships to be created in a region that is far more complicated than whether or not we go back to the 1967 lines. And the, the Khartoum conference in the aftermath of the Six-Day War, where the Arab League basically said en masse, no to negotiations, no to ex um, uh, the acceptance of Israel, no to peace, that dominated Arab and also not exclusively, but also um, Muslim understandings of the Middle East for 50 years. Part of that dynamic, of course, is created by Israel's own decisions about what to do in Judea and Samaria and the West Bank. Undeniable. And that is, and as I spoke about a little bit in my Yom Kippur sermon, that is still a very tricky issue that I don't see an easy solution to. But I think so much of that was clouded over, or so much of that clouded over otherwise um, normative ways that, um, that uh, citizens of countries in the Middle East could at least throw to Israel the, the basic recognition that they throw to every other country on the planet, which is that we may have disagreements with you. We may wish that your policies were different, but we recognize that you exist. And we're not passively or actively standing with those who are working actively such that you not exist. So I hear Bahrain and UAE saying to Israel and to the world, Israel exists. And we stand behind Israel's perpetuating. And part of that may have to do with the, you know, the military industrial complex and how many fighter jets they're going to get out of the accord. I, I get that. I am an, I, I understand, I, I'm sufficiently understanding of real politics to know that that's the case. But that's also two fewer countries that have some clout in the region saying, if you are standing on the side of those who suggest that Israel has never existed and ought not exist, we are no longer with you. I think that's significant. It's not because there'll be, there's, there's less war now between Israel and any of its neighbors, but there's more of a chance of an understanding of perpetuity. And the one thing that a country deserves is to at least be acknowledged that it is real. It is real and flawed. It is real and has work to do. It is real and imperfect. It is real and broken. It is real and not yet lived up to its, the, the, the uh, soaring words of its Declaration of Independence, like, like the United States hasn't either. But it's here. And we're not going to uh, let one single issue that has been dominated by a single population and has dominated that conversation, I think, sacrificing national aspirations on the altar of just destroying the Jewish state or intending to, not letting that one point serve to be the prism through which all of the region is understood. So this is me speaking, like kind of pretending to be a political pundit, but mostly as a rabbi. I, as a Zionist, support and celebrate and laud the fact that there are two more countries in the world amidst a block who for 50 years were not even willing to recognize it existed, now saying it exists. I tell you a story. Um, when I... Um, when I was on my sabbatical a few years ago, the last meditation retreat I did was in India. Went to Goa, India for a meditation retreat. And 
not for any other reason other than that the flights worked and it was pretty inexpensive. I flew uh, Etihad Airline, which is the airline of Abu Dhabi. There's Emirates Airline, which is Dubai, and Etihad Airline of Abu Dhabi. Um, because you flew nonstop LA to Abu Dhabi, long flight, and then Abu Dhabi to Goa. So you know how when you're on an airline and they, you have the interactive maps on big airlines, the screens where you can like zoom in and see what you're flying over and you can have the wing view and the pilot view. Um, and you can see like what, you know, you know what, what's happening right underneath you either digitally or on a real camera. So I, I enjoy that stuff. And when you have a 17 hour flight, you'll do anything to, to keep your mind occupied. So I'm just playing around. Oh, this, I forgot that this is so close to that. And I'm zooming in, zooming out, Abu Dhabi, Dubai. And the, the technology on, on this plane is very, very high tech. And you can zoom into neighborhoods in Damascus, like a Google map. Like it, they, they put it all on there. I noticed that when you, when you put the map centered around Israel, you can see um, Beirut and Damascus and Amman and, and, and uh, Riyadh and uh, Cairo and nothing in between. It did not exist. I almost had admiration for how well that they how well they use their ideology to impact their computer programming because in every other part of the globe on that device you could zoom in close when you got to where Israel's in the picture you could press plus 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 as much as you want it wouldn't zoom in further indicating to everyone who's curious Israel does not exist now it does now it does that if you're flying Etihad Airlines, I would like to think that you could use the map function to actually see the borders of the state of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. Does that mean that there's, you know, messianic peace in the Middle East? No, but I think it's a big deal. And I think it'll be a, it'll continue to be a big deal. And I think, let's see, I can say this as carefully as possible. Every person wishes that the things that they wanted to happen geopolitically happened by hands of the person they wished that had been in power. And there have been many presidents who served the United States of America that I wish would have been responsible for shepherding along accords like this. And I celebrate the accords and I celebrate the domino effect that I think is going to put painful and important pressure on feckless Palestinian leadership to finally put their own people's needs and, 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 um, and wants in, in the front of their diplomacy. I think this is going to put pressure on them. And, um, it, that, and, and, and if they respond to that pressure positively, it's going to put pressure back on Israel to make some heady concessions. That's, that's what making peace means. But I think that the extent to which some of Palestinian leadership is isolated because some of the Sunni Arab countries are basically saying, we're no longer going to be in this cesspool with you, hopefully might force them to make decisions they could have made 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40 years ago and refuse to. And I think that's a good thing. Yes, is that Adam? Hey. Yeah, come on up. So uh, this is a pretty broad question. Okay, but, uh, broad question. Yeah. In general, Jewish law always assumes that you're keeping the law. And, for example, if a Jew would go to his rabbi and say that he's not Shemar Shabbat, but what should he do, like, in order to do it the right way, even though it's, and I'm not talking about, like, a, a sanctioned way of breaking Shabbat, like Pikuach Nefesh or Hela Achariyad or anything. Um, 
like, do you know of any sort of sources or any ways of approaching those kinds of questions that, you know, I guess like a responsible halakhic answer would just be, well, you shouldn't break Shabbat in the first place. I think I know what you're asking, but I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. Can you, can you say, say it a little bit more, Adam? Right, okay. So, and say it um, a little closer to the mic so people can hear you. Oh, sure. he, he, I'll just say, he's asking a question about how the assumptions in Jewish law, the assumptions in Jewish law is that the people who are asking the questions either are observing or want to be observing it correctly. Right. Right. If, you, if, if someone asks a rabbi a question, the assumption is they want to hear the right answer for the right way to handle a situation. Right. So what I'm asking, I guess, is are there any uh, conversations in Jewish law or sources that talk about how a Jew would go about breaking certain Jewish laws, like if there are priorities uh -huh. um, and like, should you do something without wearing a kippah or something like that? For right. Hmm. It is a broad question, an interesting one. I, I think what you're asking is are there places in Jewish law where the assumption is not just I want to observe the mitzvah on the highest level, please tell me how, but I'm dealing with competing values in the, in the, in the halakhic tradition and I may have to put one value over another. Is that what you're asking, Adam? Right, yeah. I think Hannah Chorney knows. I think I'm, I might have an idea. I, the first time I encountered something, but tell me, I'm not going to get too deep into it until you tell me that this is what you're getting at. Okay. I read a tshuva for the first time, but don't stay, bear with me for a second. There was a tshuva that was written by Rabbi Miriam Berkowitz, along with some other colleagues of ours some years ago about contraception, the use of birth control in Jewish law. And it basically introduced this concept in the observance of Jewish law that I love, which is a ladder of observance. So it's like, Listen, ideally, like the way that you observe contraception is that if you're going to use contraception, you use this kind of contraception. But if you're not going to use this kind of contraception, then the next best kind of contraception that you would use, well, like the, this kind would be oral contraception would be kind of the top of the ladder. And then if you're not going to use the top of the ladder of oral contraception, then like the next time would be like this kind of device. And here's why, and here are all the principles that would inform why that would be. And if you're not going to use that kind, then the next best thing that you would possibly use would be this kind, and the next would be this. The same, just to leap to another idea to make sure I, maybe that this is possibly an answer to your question, would be theoretically one could apply this idea of observance to kashrut as in ideally when I am out and about, I should only eat at a kosher restaurant. I, only with things that are made on kosher uh, appliances, you t meaning in kosher vessels with, you know, kosher cooking utensils, et cetera, et cetera, served on kosher kept plates, et cetera. It's like separate everything. But if I'm not going to do that, then the next best possible thing would be that I only eat cold dairy out or at only exclusively vegan restaurants. And then if I can't find one of those, the next best thing might be that I eat cold sushi with non-spicy elements and the next best thing and the next best thing. Am I... Am I anywhere near yeah, yeah. an answer to a question and the idea along those lines? Yeah, the, right kind of path that the right path that you're getting? So, so I, I, I'm intrigued. I, I'll say, I don't know if I, do you want more answer or more, more, more engagement? I, I, I will say one last sentence on it and see if, 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 my, if my colleague has anything to say in response to this idea. I am compelled and intrigued and driven by the idea that I think that most Jewish people who are on the path to living an observant life actually naturally observe somewhat in that vein anyway. 
most of the time are operating somewhat on a path like that most of the time. Most of us are not able, if we are interacting with the secular world, the non-Jewish world, the non-observant world, the non-orthoprax, so to speak, orthodox world all the time, are operating in some sort of a vein like that most of the time. Um, and I'm compelled by the idea that there's like a ladder like that. I don't know. If... I, I guess my question, this isn't an, an answer to your question. This is a question for you to maybe give me thought for an answer to your question. I, I'm curious wh where your question comes from. Like what's the, what's the history of your question? What's the, what's behind the question that's asking you, that's begging for you to ask it? Um, because it, it might be helpful for us to either know if there's an example or something that has, has been challenging or has been a blessing for you that has pushed you to ask this question. Time and someone actually was talking to me about it when I was in high school at uh, at Shalhavet High School, uh -huh. and um, I remember like the rabbi didn't really have uh, really an answer for it because of course like the responsible answer is not to kind of encourage and name a way that you should break halacha, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it's just something that I was always thinking about, and I think kashrut was actually probably the thing I was thinking most about it as an example. Hmm. I, I read an article a few years ago in the Jewish Journal um, by Dennis Prager. Uh, some people really love Dennis Prager. Some people really hate Dennis Prager. That's fine. Sometimes even people you disagree with a lot say interesting things. Um, he wrote a fascinating article that was at least tangentially related to this, Adam. He was saying, how come it's the case that in normative Jewish practice, at least when it comes to ritual things, observant Judaism takes a yes-no, up-down, black-and-white approach? Do they keep Shabbat? Do they not keep Shabbat? Do they keep Kashrut? Do they not keep Shabbat? Kashrut. Are they observing Pesach? Or are they not observing Pesach? We're constantly putting people into the category of whether they do or they don't. But in some areas of Jewish practice, there's a built-in ladder that is just implied and understood and beautiful. And he gave this example, Tzedakah. You don't look out amongst your call and say, this person gives Tzedakah, this person doesn't give Tzedakah. This person gives some, this person gives more, this person gives much more compared to what they can, right? It is a range, right? And it's a range that allows people who don't give, who, who only give 8% of their post-tax income rather than 10% of their post-tax income to still be able to say, I give tzedakah. And to be able to come in front of their rabbi and say, I fulfill the, the mitzvah of tzedakah. And the rabbi can say, yes, beautifully so. And here are some ways you could do more, more of that. But it's not acceptable, and he would say, unfortunately, and I agree with him, for someone to come to their traditional rabbi and say, I observe some kashrut. I observe a lot of kashrut on a lot of days. I eat the food that the tradition asked me to eat, and I avoid the food that the tradition asked me not to eat. And I want to get credit for that, because I'm trying to live most of my food life in the rubric of Jewish tradition. Why can't we applaud that? I, I observe a lot of Shabbat. I spent a lot of the hours of most Shabbatot doing a lot of the things that Judaism is supposed to do on Shabbat. So why should it be that if I make this decision occasionally, that puts me out of the category of observing Shabbat? He's, he's taking basically a um, kind of a reform movement's approach to personal choice when it comes to observance and challenging traditional Judaism, tra challenging orthodoxy and traditional Judaism to give space for it. And it actually has made me rethink my own observance of both Shabbat and Kashrut and others. Right? When I was 
I don't know, when I was a younger rabbi, I did think of it more black and white. There are members of my community who keep Shabbat, there are members of my community who don't. What a terribly limiting way of thinking about the, the whole array of human decisions. Everyone in my community is observing a significant amount of the holiday of Shabbat in a way that's meaningful to them. And maybe my job as a rabbi is to find more ways for them to do it more consistently. So I do think that built into the tradition is an acceptance and a malleability of a range of observance patterns. And that it ought not be that a person asking a rabbi a question has to assume that the rabbi assumes that you want to do it perfectly right, but you want to be in the game. And I think that that is uh, worthy of applause. I think that Rabbi Shapiro has an answer, but I wanted Rabbi to say Shapiro, one quick thing all people. before he literally jumps up here. Um, Tigger. I was just going to, the reason I asked you to share with us what the background, what the history was of, the, of your question is because as Rabbi Klickfeld just mentioned, I think that it's about access. I think that it's about you sitting down with somebody, hearing their question and you being able to engage with them and what their access point needs to be. So if someone comes to me and says, I've never kept kosher a day in my life, I'm not going to say, great, let me tell you all the ways that you're going to kosher your entire home. You're going to only eat at kosher restaurants and you're going to move on with your life. You're going to take steps. And so I think that to me, one of the best ways to go about thinking about a life of observance is to figure out what's that way in, what's that access point so that you can touch someone, not just because it might be the quote unquote right thing to do based on a book, but because it's the thing that's going to make them feel the most meaning towards the mitzvah. I'm going to give our jumping rabbi the last, the last word. As long as it's not iterative. I, I hope our, we're, we're, we're losing steam here. I hope our live stream audience is going a little bit strong. But hi, everybody. Kamar Khatimat Tova. When I, when I, I still get it sometimes that you can sit down if you want, by the way. You've been standing up a very long time. You know you asked a great question when you get all four of us giving us extensive uh, answers. So in and of itself, Yashir Koach on the question. Um, I get it sometimes at Betham. I got it more at Beit Shuva where I worked for a while. Um, I'd start talking with someone and they'd come up to me and they'd say, Rabbi, I'm just a bad Jew. Right? You guys ever hear that? Right? People come up to you and say, Ugh, I'm a bad Jew. And usually what they meant, nine times out of ten, was not because out of any ethical considerations, right, or, or any specific um, principles, but because they hadn't gone to synagogue, right, because they, they hadn't been eating the right foods, right? There were, there were certain core ritual components that they knew about, that they felt guilty about, that they felt like they should be doing, but they hadn't been doing. And I think to, to walk around with that frame of I'm a bad Jew is, is so destructive, right? And counter to any of the lovely sort of constructs that have been thrown in terms of a ladder of observance, in terms of working towards something, right? But that, that doesn't come out of nowhere, right? Somewhere along the way, whether it's because of their own guilt and their own regret or because someone sort of reflected that to them, they got the memo that because they weren't doing certain things, they were a bad Jew, and therefore that, that burdens them with this sense of, of oi, right? So of all days on Yom Kippur, I think it's a great question to ask. I think, like, if only, to like flip it around, and, and Rabbi Klickfeld was getting into this a little bit, if only we held ourselves to the same standard when it comes to everything we heard about in the Haftarah today, right? About doing 
acts of justice and kindness towards the poor and housing the unhoused and clothing the naked and feeding the hungry, if only we held ourselves to anywhere near the standard that some of us hold ourselves to when it comes to ritual observance, right? That, that would be phenomenal, right? And so I think it's not just a question of, is there a construct through which we can approach this, but where are we even applying this construct of observance, right? How are we applying that same level of questioning to sort of every area that our tradition calls us to answer? Um, and I think the, the idea in and of itself of asking the question, of saying, how do I go about thinking about this? Um, I'm grateful you asked it. And clearly it's a great question again, because uh, you got answers, you got answers from all four of us. So I hope that at least one of the four of us, uh, maybe even more, give you something to think about. So thank you for the question. So I think there are two Zoom questions waiting. There's Scott and Natasha. Let's go to Natasha first. Natasha, what's your question? Hi, hello. Um, I just, uh, well, first of all, this is this will be my second year um, observing Rosh Hashanah with Temple Betham, and I'm completely overwhelmed by the thoughtfulness and the strategy behind, you know, putting together this Zoom call. I was actually... Um, watching all this morning on YouTube. And when you asked um, the audience if they had any questions, I couldn't hop on fast enough. So um, I guess I guess I will filter my question through Adam's question. Um, and and it, it mostly pertains to um, what Torah, what the Torah says, and what Temple Betham says about this, this particular question I'm, I'm getting ready to ask. So I'm fairly new to the Jewish community. Um, I'm a single mother of a young child. And um, I, I'm curious as to what the Torah says and what Temple Betham says about um, single mothers and fatherless children. And what what is the... Um, what is the... All right. Let me let me start there. What what does the Torah say about fatherless children and single mothers, and what does Temple Betham say about that? Got it. Thank you, Natasha. And I I, I kind of see you through the glare of the box in between where I am and where the screen is. But I but I I I, I know you and I know your face, and it's a lo lovely to have you a part of this. Um, and thank you for those kind words. Um. The, the Torah itself doesn't really have an example of a fatherless child the way you are describing it. Um, the Bible has examples of, of, um, of children of parents, one of whom passes away, right? So in fact, in the book of um, either, either, either when, when, when parents or spouses pass away, there are people who are left lonely but there isn't a, a specific description of the situation I think you're describing. So I think we have to like pull out and ask more broadly, what does the Torah say about parents and what does Temple Betham says about parents? Because I would think that whatever the Torah and Judaism and Temple Betham says about parents, it says about parents, whether they are in a relationship, in a marriage, raising a child together or under any set of circumstances, raising them alone. 
I think what the Torah and the Jewish tradition in Temple Beth Am says about parents is that they are to be revered. They are to be held in awe by their children and also by the community for what they're doing. And that if they are giving love and guidance and structure and safety and transmitting the tradition such that, as the Torah says over and over again, specifically about the Pesach story, that if your child asks you the question, will you have an answer for them? We had that in the uh, Torah reading for Hazino over Shabbat. She'el avicha v'yagedcha, ask your father, and he will tell you, zekinecha v'yom rulach, ask your elders, and they will report it to you. If you're in a relationship with your child, where you're transmitting the values and the stories of our tradition, then that's everything, and anything else beyond that is commentary. I do think, having been a parent now for 19 years almost, and, and never having been a single parent, and knowing many single parents, including in my family, that empirically, it's just undeniably harder to raise a child or do much as an adult without the regularity of partnership. It's just harder. It's a harder task. That's a statement that evinces no judgment. It's just true. It's harder to maintain a home without partnership. There are certain aspects of partnership that make maintaining a home more challenging because you have to take you know, other people's aesthetics and convictions into mind. But my experience having raised now three children or still raising three children with a partner gives me, an, without, standing, um, without being um, pandering about it, gives me an extra level of awe for those who are doing that task without the regular partnership of another adult in the family. So I think Judaism would say, and the Torah would say, and Betham would say, we celebrate the parents in our midst who are doing jobs that never end, who are trying to teach a tradition against the grain of a modern society that does not necessarily make it easy to inculcate Jewish values, and that recognizes that all parents, whether single parents or in a married couple, are overworked and exhausted and under-thanked and therefore deserves to be able to check into a community such as ours and feel embraced and feel uh, blessed. So I know I danced around the question because there isn't a direct question. This isn't a direct answer to the tradition, but I guess it's my opportunity to say to all parents listening, whether you're in a, a marriage, uh, a, a domestic partnership or not, we love you and revere you and call kavod all the power to you for doing this task of raising the next generation of Jews. Um, did you have another one, or do we want to move to Scott? I know Scott has a question. Should we hear from Scott? And thank you for that question. Okay, mine's all over the place now. Um, listening to everybody talking, just really, really touching. But I just wanted to uh, first um, thank you very much for your sermon last night. Um, your sermon had to me, a lot of the beliefs that I have, and I think a lot of it is empathy towards other people, uh, whether they're Black, Palestinian. I mean, people have a story behind them. And I know I'm not the most religious person, but as far as a Jew, I show empathy. And um, sometimes I feel people kind of... Um, 
kind of push back when I try to express saying, well, not everything's always black and white. People do have history. They do have, they then, because one person thinks one way doesn't mean the whole other part of the community thinks the same way. So with Israel, um, what are we doing as far as getting us involved in maybe, and even here in the United States uh, with the Black Lives Matter movement and all that, helping people that, that need help and changing the views of others too, so we can have more peace and, and understand the, the rest of the country. Yeah. Thank you, Scott. There, there, there's a lot in what you just said, so I'm trying to figure out the best way to answer it. Here's the direction I'll take in answering really a, a seven-part question, and that's not a critique. That's just you said a lot. Um, I think an apt um, critique of what I said last night could be as follows. I mean, I stand behind what I said, but I, as I was thinking about the sermon and running, running it by colleagues, an apt critique is, well, if you're so curious about everyone else's position, then when do you start standing for something in particular? And when do you take stances? And when do you say, that I'm not willing to listen to? That is beyond the pale. That is unacceptable. That is hatred. That is rhetoric. That is propaganda. Because if you take the curiosity concept to the extreme, you're always so interested in what other people might have to teach you that you might forget that part of what it means to be a human being and a citizen is to develop a, an ethic and a stance of that which you believe to be right. So I didn't make it explicit in my sermon because I was hoping it was obvious, but maybe I shouldn't have uh, left it so vague, is that I don't think that we apply that curiosity to, I'll just, I'll use the obvious extreme to learn back all the ones in, in, in between the, the center point extreme to the Nazis, right? I don't think that that sermon in 1941 would have been given saying, you know what? Sit down with a Nazi for three hours and ask them what makes them tick and maybe you can understand what they have to teach to you. That's, that's a ridiculous example on the fringe with hundreds of places in between. I do think that having an open mind and open heart does not mean that you are pre, uh, prevented or, or unburdened from having to come up with opinions on important things whether it comes to issues of race in our, in our society and the enormous way we have to go before we're achieving anything that could be called justice and equality. Uh, whether you're talking about the Middle East, I went on that trip called Encounter um, to, um, to experience life uh, in the Palestinian territories. As I said in the sermon, not to surrender my Zionism and not to convert in one fell swoop to believe that everything I once thought about the West Bank is now undermined, but to be able to have more chambers in my heart where I'm thinking about the real lived experiences of those who are the, um, the objects of, the, of, of what that rule looks like and maybe allow me to have different kinds of conversations with people about the topic. So that's another roundabout answer to a, a question that has a lot of different components to it. And it's my way of trying to say maybe to myself, in addition to saying all you, that there is a point at which beautiful curiosity has to yield to that which is right and that which is wrong. And some things are right and some things are wrong. And some policies are right and some policies are wrong. And some 
justice systems are right and some justice systems are wrong. And I do think that we both have to be actively curious and activists at the same time. But we're all going to choose different ways to be activists. And that's why I refuse. I almost entirely refuse from the Bhima, Temple Batham, to do what other colleagues do do, and I don't judge them for it, which is different rabbis. And that is to instruct the Kahal from the Bhima which things they should be activists for. It's not my way. It's not the way I understand Torah. I think you can wield Torah to be activists for all sorts of different things, including things that are diametrically opposed to one another. But I do think Torah should inspire us to be activists for causes that stem from our understanding of the Torah's highest values. How's that for a non-answer? Who is that? Hi, Debbie. It's, it's... I, the political atmosphere, the political atmosphere in which we all live today, um, we have to find ways to cope and to deal with the stresses that come with it. And the thing that I am struggling with is actually how to be curious um, with family that hold such different views that seem to me antithetical to Jewish values. And it's really a struggle. In fact, I restrain myself from being curious because it's so painful. Yes. And that it could develop into such a worse situation, like silence is shalom habayat. Right. And I'm, I'm very much in favor of that. Yeah. So we, we strain ourselves because we're afraid that if we go further, we will, we will lose ourselves. We will lose our own dignity as we listen to something so abhorrent. And just by listening, we might be honoring. And we don't want to, there's, there's, there's a notion of, of acquiescence, of silence is acquiescence. And in Jewish law, that if you're quiet, you somehow acquiesce to what you're hearing and you don't want to acquiesce to things that you think are abhorrent. By the way, there are some abhorrent applications of the very principle. There are rabbis in our neighborhood who will not walk into the Temple Beth Am sanctuary because by walking into the sanctuary, they're giving sanction to the fact that concerted Judaism deserves to be counted as a Judaism because they would say, if I'm quiet, in the presence of walking into the sanctuary, you might think that I think this is a legitimate sanctuary. So there's some pretty abhorrent applications of that, of that concept as well. In fact, I, uh, I won't name names, but I once, there was a, there was a, there was a wedding here at Temple Beth Am of two people, of, of a member and someone who was associated with another synagogue. And the other, the rabbi of the other synagogue officiated only on condition that the ceremony take place in any other room but the sanctuary. So the sanctuary, the seminary took place in Hirsch Hall, Hirsch Kapolev downstairs, because that way the rabbi could avoid the sin of walking into a synagogue and giving any kind of uh, reference or honor to it. And that, by the way, is a principled position. I think it's a dastardly position, but it's principled, right? So when we, take, when we live by our principles, we exclude people, 
And then maybe that is what's called for certain times because we want to exclude people who don't fit into our category. And this rabbi has no problem saying they wants to exclude us. We don't exist. And that's where he draws a line. That's what Torah is telling him to do. I think it's disgusting, but I, what I don't think is disgusting is the idea, idea of living by your principles and drawing lines. But we all wish, we all want to be able to draw the lines where we think we should be drawing them and not where others. When it comes to listening to others who have opinions that we find so distasteful. Uh, you know, when you're editing a sermon, you do a lot of cuts. There are a lot of things that didn't make it onto the final cut. So here's a story that didn't make the final cut of the sermon, but it was, it was one of the last things to be cut. So I got it in. Um, I learned this summer of two members of our community, two leaders whom I know and love and care about a lot, who couldn't be farther apart on the political spectrum, domestically, internationally, like they could not be farther apart, like really Hasidim for their causes, not just kind of, you know, a passive voter in this way, but Hasidim for their causes. Two people who I know to be decent, educated, well-read, smart, thoughtful, caring people. After kind of glancing blows with one another over the course of uh, of years, not physical blows, but just like, you know, you jab in and out. I don't know which one decided first, but they decided they would sit down and just talk. And they thought the conversation would be about a half an hour. And they spent four hours just listening to the other, listening to this person that they knew whom they assumed held, the, I used this phrase last night, ideas that were either moronic or monstrous or both and try to hear the other person explain why this position might be still extremely disagreeable to you, but it's not moronic and it's not monstrous. And I think that their hearts softened in that encounter. And it was hard, like just like conjure in your mind the version of the person of that to you and listen to them for two hours. And they walked away with a deeper understanding of, of what the other one stood for. And they don't think that the other one is a moron or a monster. They still think that the other one has positions that are not defensible, either according to American values or Jewish values or both. But there's an understanding. And they can sit next to each other at a boardroom table and, and have some honor for the other, even if they would never, ever hold most of those positions. I don't think that's unprincipled. I think it's living by a principle that's even more valuable, which is the curiosity of wanting to know what animates other people. It doesn't mean you have to digest and become them, right? Like that, that was what was so shocking to me about my, my dream. I, in my dream, I was becoming, for instance, I mean, you think about like the, the weirdness of your unconscious in a dream. In the dream, it was so overwhelming because I had become a man with black skin, which meant that I would have to live a life with what our society burdens that with. And it was overwhelming. But in real life, not in dreamscape, quote unquote, just having a conversation with someone who's on the exact opposite side of you are on Israeli politics or American politics does not force you to become them. And it doesn't, it's not, it's not giving their opinions sanction or honor by listening to them. And you might understand something that you didn't know about why they hold that opinion. So again, going back to Scott's question, at some point you have to be able to stand for something and, 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 and make lines in the sand. 
but I think we have to be much more generous than we have been in general as a society. You have a follow-up, Debbie? Maybe. They weren't that way for me on Encounter. When I went to Encounter, the, the Palestinians I met were not on Encounter with me. I was on Encounter with them. I was listening. They were being visited by me for me to learn about them. They were not meeting me halfway. We're told on that trip, you are not there to, you're not supposed to ask a single question that you don't know the answer to. Sorry. Only ask a question that you don't know the answer to. You don't ask gotcha questions. You don't ask questions that allow them to reveal your stance on things. You are there to find out and to be curious. Now, maybe in some alternate universe, there'll be a version of encounter that since Palestinian Arabs or, 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 or you know, Palestinian Americans or Muslim Americans into Jude Jewish settlements in the West Bank, and to just sit and learn their narratives. It doesn't exist yet, maybe it will. But the purpose of that trip was, was not to be met halfway and to do the right and generous thing, even if the others in the dyad are not doing the right and generous thing. And by the way, I think that obtains in relationship, right? It obtains in the micro, right? In any friendship or any marriage or any relationship, there are many moments that require one of the two to say, I'm gonna be the one that's going to yield. I'm going to listen. I'm going to be patient. And until one of them decides to do it completely, there's going to be um, blockage perpetually. I've told this story um, sometime before, so you may have heard it, but it, I always come back to it in this kind of a, a moment. So I have a great relationship with my mother. You know, it's not a perfect one, but I would say in public and private that I love my mother. My mother loves me. I'm very grateful for her. I have a great relationship with her. And at different times in one's life, that relationship gets, you know, frayed and often around big life cycle events. The week leading up to my wedding, we were in a bad place. I acknowledge it and she would acknowledge it. I don't know what it was. I don't know. I was, I, I was st staying at home in Connecticut where I grew up and this childhood patterns were awakened and, and she was acting in a way that did not work well with me. And I was clearly acting with not well with her. And we were getting very close to when I was going to get married. So I got married on a Thursday. That Monday morning, we had the Ufruf at my synagogue in Connecticut. Um, and I was getting married out here in Los Angeles. So I was going to have the Ufruf and then get on a plane, fly to LA and have a couple of days with some friends out here before the wedding. And my mother and I were oil and water that morning. That, like the, the tension in the house that morning, I, like, I, I'm not overstating it. It was just waiting to boil over. And I had been looking forward to my Ufra for many years. And I hated my Ufra because there was so much anger and resentment. And I don't even know why. I couldn't even look at her. And from the Ufra, she was going to drive me to Bradley Airport in Hartford and I was going to fly to LA. And the next time I was going to see her, I would be walking down the aisle. And it's about an hour long drive. And we sat in silence. And my mind's turning, and I'm assuming what her mind is turning. I'm thinking, is this the way I'm going to go to my chuppah? And I was so convinced that she was acting so, you know, immaturely and blah, 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 blah. I was so convinced that I was right. And with about 20 minutes left until we got to the airport, something 
stirred in me that made me realize that unless I went all the way to where she was, we, this is how we were going to feel under the chuppah. And about 20 minutes before we got to the airport, I started to speak and I said, Ima, I'm nervous and I'm anxious and I probably haven't been acting appropriately and I'm sorry. And she started to cry and I started to cry. And for the last 19 minutes of the trip till we got to Bradley Airport, we found each other. But we wouldn't have found each other had I said, Ima, meet me halfway in compromise. Wouldn't have worked because we would have resisted that. In this case, it was me. And another time in my life might have been her. One person had to go to the other person's place and be vulnerable and be open and exposed. And something within me stirred me to do that at that time. It's not entirely analogous, but it's not completely not analogous, right? And I think sometimes it takes the full heart and maturity of someone to go completely into another person's lair and territory and lay down the arms and just listen and see if there could be something that is built from that, even if that person wouldn't be willing to do that on your behalf at that moment. Because relationships are dynamic and happen over decades. And in that moment, it was called upon me to do it. And, you know, miniature payment for all of the times in my life where she met me exactly where I needed to be. Ronan, maybe one or two more questions because it's getting, well, it's not getting late, but it's getting long. gears very sharply. Okay. Um, so I was very moved in the meditation service by the idea of tying a nigun to the teaching of that rabbi. And I was thinking about it and I was like, this is not something that I feel is a very strong strain of teaching right. in, in conservative Judaism and kind of a lot of what I've experienced in my life. The idea of teaching uh, wisdom from the same sage as their own kind of nigun that they're famous for. Yeah. Can you just talk about that and what that means to you and what you think of it? Yeah. Um, I mean, first, thank you for recognizing that because th that, that, that was intentional. Um, a, a couple of answers come to mind, Ronan, and just for the context, Ronan is a composer. So he's asking this question, not only at full, no, but like so y your, your, your artistic contribution to the world are, are co combinations of notes and, that, that speak to the soul. And so I understand why you'd be interested in why, in, in the association of a rabbi's music with a rabbi's wisdom. One of the best classes I ever took um, was, was, was a one-off. Um, early on in my years as a rabbi, I was on like a rabbinic cabinet for the conservative yeshiva in Israel. Basically, we were committed to raising money and awareness about the conservative yeshiva, which at the time was a, a new institution. I think you studied there? And Rabbi Chorney studied there. I never studied there formally because it didn't exist when I was, and Rabbi Shapiro studied there. I don't know. Tig, Tigger studied there um, because it didn't exist back in my day. Um, so when I, to go to Yesh when I went to Yeshiva for a semester, I went to Yeshiva Hamiftar because uh, it's an Orthodox Yeshiva because the conservative Yeshiva didn't exist. So I was committed to helping this institution um, uh, get off the ground. So why am I telling you this? So on one, one of the, 
one of the experiences we had, like the rabbinic cabinet, if you raised a certain am- amount of money for the yeshiva, you got to go like one of these junkets where you get a pretty inexpensive trip to Israel and spend a couple of days studying at the yeshiva, learning with the students and the teachers, and then you could tell the story of the yeshiva when you went back home to fundraise. So I went and I was there for a couple of days and I happened to sit on a class uh, that was being offered by Rabbi Dr. Pesach Schindler. Did you study with him? Okay, of, of blessed memory. Pesach Schindler, who was a uh, scion of a, of a Hasidic family who became an academic and was the head, he was like the head of the, of the Center for Concerted Judaism in uh, Jerusalem. I studied with him actually when I was on Ativ as well. And he was teaching a class on Hasidic commentaries on the, on the um, Haggadah. And I was, this was a whole semester and I just sat on one of them. I don't remember the name of the Hasidic sect, but he taught a commentary on the words, Vihisha Amda, Vihisha Amda, Labotenu Vulano, the promise that has stood for us in our generations, Shalohachad, Bilvad, Amada, Lin, Lachalotenu, that it's not just one person that's come up to try to destroy us. Every generation, they come up, they try to destroy us. And the Holy One has saved us from their hands. He taught a commentary on that from some Hasidic sect, I don't know, Bells or Ger or Piazet, I don't know what it was. And then at the end of it, after an hour-long class, he taught that Hasidic sect's nigun to that prayer. And it was amazing. It was gewaltic because your brain had been stimulated by the wisdom of that Hasidic tradition. And now your heart was moved by, th- by that which only music can do. And you can imagine them in their Beit Midrash in Ukraine or Hungary or Poland singing this nigun. And I loved it so much that I took from it both the general concept that when possible teach the music associated with the tradition that you're studying. And particularly, our family now sings that Vahisha Amda at our Seder every single year. When I was younger, I intuited something about this, but it wasn't quite as, not in the musical realm. So I used to lead uh, USY trips to Eastern Europe and Israel. And um, we noticed at the end of the summer that we were doing a very, very, very good job of teaching our kids about the worst aspects of the Shoah. They could tell us how many people died in Majdanek and what was the name of the Oberstumfuhrer of Treblinka. But we asked them anything about Jewish life in Eastern Europe before the war, they knew nothing. Our fault. We were, doing, we were basically saying that Jewish life in Eastern Europe began in 1939 when they started to destroy us. But that for the hundreds of years before that, it was like a mirage. We were not doing enough job, a good enough job in, in talking about the, 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 the beauty, the splendor of hundreds of years of Jewish existence. So we decided in future years that we would go to iconic locations associated with particular rabbis, the Maharal of Prague, where the, the Altenoy Synagogue, and the Rabbi Moshe Isilis Synagogue in Krakow, which I spoke about in one of my medit- um, uh, Jivay Torah today, and um, the Ger the Hasidim in the town of Ger. And instead of just talking about how many Jews from this shtetl were rounded up and gassed, we taught traditions that were written by the rabbis who made those locations their home. So I taught something from the Maharal of Prague in the Maharal Synagogue in, 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 in Prague. And I taught the first few lines of the, Shulchan, the Ashkenazi Shulchan Aruch in the synagogue of the Rabbi Moshe Israelis in Krakow. And I taught something, oh, and, I, and I taught wisdom from the Vilna Gaon at the Vilna Gaon's grave and at his synagogue. So it was attaching not the music of the rabbi, but if we're gonna, if we're gonna if we're going to engage, if we're going to read the epitaph of the rabbi for how he died and how his community died, let us at least 
get into something that was prevalent while he was alive. Um, so I like the idea of this cross-fertilization of not just learning biographical facts about someone and not just learning about what they had to teach about the tradition, but also something about their spiritual life, which could be found through the music. Um, I'm not a Jewish musicologist, so I know a lot about Nigunim, but I, I don't know 3% of what one would need to know to make sure that one does what I did today with the Pia's Esther more often, because, and a lot of it doesn't uh, exist. Like we don't have the music of the Maharal of Prague, as far as I know, and we don't have the music of Rabbi Yosef Karo, who wrote the Shulchan Aruch. But to the extent that we do have it, we should use it. And I guess the last thing I will say is, we can do it now again in the modern tradition. Like, so when Josh Warshawski, Rabbi Josh Warshawski, um, gives a Dvar Torah on something on a, on a holiday Zoom and then uses his tune that he composed to that liturgy, it's an incredible fusion. It's an incredible fusion. And I think we should be trying to do it more often. Thank you for that question. One more on Zoom and then we'll call it a day. Who's on Zoom? Stuart. Unmute, I, unmute thine self, Stuart. Hi. Stuart. Thank you for uh, allowing me to ask a question. I'm going to ask a very broad question, uh, which I'm sure you've thought about greatly over the years. And that is that uh, there's been many articles in the last few years about the future of conservative jury, with the argument that with the, uh, the fact that there many reform congregations are moving to the right with more ritual and more observance, that uh, there's questions about the future of the conservative movement. And I would uh, like you to comment about that. We're out of time. I'm, I, I, I'm so sorry, Stuart. <laughs> really. Um, okay. I'm trying to think if I should give the three-minute, 10-minute, or 40-minute answer to that question. Three. I know. I'm, I'm kidding. I know. But I'm saying, like, I, I, there's, there's a lot more to say. Okay. So I care about conservative Judaism, and I don't care about conservative Judaism. And I mean both of those statements. I care about the structure of the American conservative Jewish life. I care about our brand. I care about the synagogue, and the synagogue is organized according to conservative Jewish principles. I care about my job. I care about my team. I care about the perpetuation of this, of this structure. And I don't, in the sense that what I care about is are serious Jews involved in an active engagement with both modernity and tradition. And I'm humble enough to know that, that there's not just one way of approaching that. And if I were to Rip Van Winkle myself and wake up in 100 years, and the United Synagogue of Concerted Judaism would not exist, and the Rabbinical Assembly would not exist, and conservative synagogues did not exist, and the Masorti brand of Judaism did not exist, did not exist in Israel. But, but new buds had burst through the ground and were living out the 22nd century's version of an engagement with contemporaneous mores and age-old traditions. Even if all of the brand names had changed, I would celebrate. I would mourn because I am nostalgically and professionally associated with some of these structures. But writ large, I don't think that the Kaddish Baruch Hu, the Holy One, blessed be her name, knows or cares about conservative Judaism. 
the extent to which we, the extent to which we can anthropomorphize God, God cares about serious Jews engaging seriously, honestly, and passionately. So I know that's not really the question you asked. You asked, you, I think you wanted a more wonky answer as to what's going to happen um, as, as um, resources shrink, as communities join each other, um, and as some of the identities that have um, described concerted Judaism in, in America for 100 years begin to uh, d- disappear. That does keep me up at night. Um, I, don't, I, I don't mind admitting it. I, I do wonder if in three, five, 10, 15, 20 years, what percentage of what we've taken for granted in this structure will exist. But on a religious, spiritual level, I care more about like the words in this book being interesting to the next 10 generation of Jews than I am about who published it. And if it means that even in my lifetime and in my career or beyond it, movements fuse and and, and boundaries become more um, permeable and therefore the structures that we've inherited convulse leading to a lot of temporary discomfort. If it's in the name of Judaism continuing to reinvent itself while it remains in love with the Torah and the rabbinic tradition, I'd like to think I would applaud it even if it meant something personally challenging in terms of my work and my career. Some of my rabbi friends and I like engage in gallows humor, and we say like, like all the structures have to do is last our careers. After that, let it, let you know, let let the chips fall where they may, right? Yeah, it's, uh, the, the the younger rabbis will take care of it, which is our way of saying that we know that this is not an edifice like the Prudential Rock that's going to live forever. United Synagogue of Concerted Judaism, which is an example, is not the Book of Leviticus. It's not the Talmud. It's a it's a temporary. Um, uh, like po- Polaroid picture of about a hundred years of American Jewish yearning for Jews kind of like us. And it would not surprise me if there are more mergers. Uh, Rabbi Kineski and I have talked about it sometimes, you know, w- with, a, with a twinkle and sometimes realistically, like why should we communities who love each other, who care for each other, who daven differently and who do Jewish law differently, why should we be wasting so much Jewish money on preserving two campuses so close to each other, two sets of security staff, two executive directors, two electrical uh, electricity bills, two everythings. What if we just become a Jewish community? And in this room, we have this kind of davening and in that room, that kind of davening. There's a Rabbi Kineski service, there's a Rabbi Klickfeld service, there's a Rabbi Shapiro service, Rabbi Chorney service, a Moratina Rabbanita Alyssa Thomas service, et cetera, et cetera. The reason why we haven't done that yet is because we've, we're all somewhat committed to what we've inherited in these structures, but they're not from Sinai. And I won't uh, cry that much if they change radically, if the reason they're changing radically is for Judaism to, to be more vibrant, not less. You want to say something? Rabbi Turney will have the last word, as no, always. No, 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 I do not need the last word, but I'll... I will, I will only take it a step further and say, what if it's not just conservative Judaism that's not set in stone, but also all of this Judaism that's not set in stone? Because I think that we've entered an era of enormous radical equity and accessibility because 
what was our friend's name who unmuted a little bit earlier from Florida, but uh, who wanted to know the size of our congregation. Um, but it's now possible to experience Judaism in the same way if you live in Portland, Oregon, as if you live on Park Avenue in New York City. And just as it was assumed that Temple Judaism was Judaism when Temple Judaism was Temple Judaism, and then synagogue Judaism became what it was, I think that this era that we're living in, like, I mean, just to go to the direct and not just the meta, like, look at what this Yom Kippur is. And I think that this is a year for us to ask questions about all assumptions that we've ever made about what makes Jewish practice work, uh, what makes communities tick, and how we can be sharing resources and opening our doors and making practices accessible. And in those shifts, we may lose things, but I bet we're also going to wind up gaining a lot. Perspective, people, uh, communities crossing over together. And uh, this Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah have been very weird. <laughs> they continue to be very weird, um, but, but also wonderfully full of possibilities too because of that. I think we'll end here at least partially because this space has to be re- uh, constructed for Neela because we're having an entirely different setup. I want to say to all of you who are here under the tent and all of you who've been watching on Zoom and live stream, a very special experience to share Yom Kippur this year with all of you. Have a safe and easy remainder of your fast. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.